Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 127 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Pascagoula UFO abduction. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. On October 11th, 1973, just over 47 years ago, two fishermen in Pascagoula, Mississippi, saw a mysterious object descend from the sky, and they were taken on board by strange creatures that seemed robotic. After the Betty and Barney Hill encounter, it's considered one of the most famous UFO abduction cases in history. We have numerous documents, tape recordings, and witnesses from immediately after the event. We even have a secret tape recording of an interview that the police did with the men the same night the event happened. And by all accounts, the two fishermen were freaked out, and the younger one was bordering on panic. So who were these men? What happened to them? And was their experience evidence of alien contact? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So Jimmy, how will we be approaching this mystery? As you indicated, this is one of the best documented alien abduction reports in view of the documents, recordings, and witnesses that are available. Consequently, there's more to cover than we can do in a single episode. So today, we'll tell the story of what the two men reported and look at it from the faith perspective and a little bit from the reason perspective. Then next week, we'll put on our detective hats and try to figure out what happened in the original 1973 incident from the reason perspective. Excellent. I'm going to have to get a literal detective hat in this case, I think. Uh, <laughs> a nice deer soccer. So, Jimmy, where is our story set? Pascagoula is in Jackson County in the southern portion of the state of Mississippi, right down at the bottom on the Gulf of Mexico. It's also at the mouth of the Pascagoula River. Uh, Pascagoula is a name that means eater of bread in a local Native American language. The explorer Hernando de Soto seems to have visited the site in the 1540s. It was eventually settled by Europeans, including people of Spanish, French, and English extraction. Before World War II, it was a fishing village with a population of around 5,000. During the war, it became a center for shipbuilding, and shipbuilding became one of the major local industries. It still wasn't very big, though. In the 1970s, there were, when our story occurs, there were 27,000 people living there. After the Cold War, the shipbuilding industry declined, and in the most recent census in 2010, there were only about 22,000 people living there. So it's lost a bit of its population in the last 40 years. Okay. And who was Charles Hickson? He was born in 1931 and for some time lived in Jones County, but eventually he moved to Jackson County, where he became one of the workers in the Pascagoula shipbuilding industry. He worked for the Walker Shipyard. He was also an avid fisherman. At the time of the encounter, he was 42 years old and a family man with children. He passed on in 2011 at the age of 80. All right. And who is Calvin Parker? He was born in 1954 in Texas, but grew up in Jones County, Mississippi. His family were friends with the Hicksons, which is how Calvin knew them. At the time of the encounter, he was 19 years old. We'll hear an interview later where someone thinks he's 18, but he was really 19. And he was engaged to be married. Seeking a better job than the one he had, Calvin called Charlie in Pascagoula and asked if he might be able to help him get employment there. Charlie said yes, and he got a job for Calvin at the Walker Shipyards. Calvin is also an avid fisherman, and he is still around today. Where were they and what were they doing at the time of the encounter? 
since Charlie and Calvin knew each other and Calvin was new in town, Charlie invited him to go fishing on the Pascagoula River after work on the night of October 11th, 1973. So they went fishing, but they weren't having much luck. Charlie suggested they try another spot, which was in an abandoned shipyard. That meant they didn't really have permission to be there, and Calvin called Charlie's attention to the no trespassing sign, but Charlie said it would be okay that he'd gone there lots of times without a problem. Because the shipyard was abandoned, it was not being kept up, and a lot of trash had washed in on the tide and been deposited on the ground. Here's how Calvin describes what it was like. First thing I noticed was all the debris and the trash and the tall weeds. And I thought, hell, this can't be a shipyard in business or anything right now because it, it was just cluttered up. I said, Charlie, why don't they take care of this place? He said, well, they've abandoned this place and the water gets up and when it goes back out, it leaves all the debris that it washes in from the woods and under people's houses and all. Well, that made a lot of sense. And it was old refrigerators and everything else there where people had been dumping. But we waited down, or can't say waited because it was dry land. We walked through the debris, which took us about 15 minutes to get to where we was going to fish. And there was no pier there and there was no log laying back behind this pier. And I remember us grabbing that log, throwing it up on the pier to have something to set on. So when we started fishing, I was looking across the river at the old big ship over there. And I was thinking to myself, now how does something made out of steel float? Cause steel is heavy and I just experienced beating on it all day with a sledgehammer, putting it in place. And about that time, coming from behind me, which would be west, right straight behind me, about 300 yards, I noticed there were some blue hazy lights flashing out across the water. Calvin's first thought was that the blue flashing lights behind them were from a police cruiser and that they were about to get in trouble with the cops because they were trespassing in the abandoned shipyard to go fishing. However, when he and Charlie turned around, they saw the lights were not coming from a police car. Instead, they were coming from something they had never seen before. Here's how Charlie describes it. I heard some kind of zipping-like sound, like uh, air of a steam or something escaping from a pipe. And as I turned around, I saw two blue flashing lights, or either pulsating lights, I'm not sure, and... It seemed like it was some type of craft, and it seemed like it was almost down to the ground then. In fact, it was. It seemed to be about a, uh, a couple of feet, you know, above the ground, and it just hovered there. Can you give us some idea of the size of this craft? Well, the craft, let me explain now. The angle that I was looking toward the craft, it's hard for me to say, which I can't say, whether the craft was round like a disc or whether it was long or oblong like a cigar. But I'm looking at it from this angle. So all I can see is what is this side and what I'm assuming to be the front, and maybe it's a little bit of the back. But it appeared to me that it was about 30 or 40 foot long and maybe 8 or 10 foot high. Just before where the opening appeared, there seemed to be two small windows up toward the front and the top, two small windows, and directly behind the windows was the revolving or the pulsating blue light. So it was 30 to 40 feet long and 8 to 10 feet high, but because of the angle he was viewing it from, he couldn't tell what shape it was if you saw it from above or below. And then almost immediately some type of opening appeared in the, the end that was Taurus, and the, the light had, had come outside, but just, it was real, real bright light. And three things appeared in the doorway uh, of the craft, and... They seem to just glide out, out of the craft. They never touch the ground. They seem to just glide across. It must have been 25 or 30 feet from us, or, or maybe a little further than that. And these things that, um, that came out of the craft, they were about five or five foot four inches tall. And they didn't have a neck. Uh, the, the head seemed to come directly to the shoulders. And they had something that resembled a nose on a, on a face. And 
and uh, about where ears would be was something that was uh, similar to the nose, only it was a little longer. They it seemed to come out almost to a point. And under the nose, there was something like a slit for a mouth, and, and uh, it was very wrinkled. And it, it, seemed, it appeared to me to be something like an elephant skin, but I don't know where it was a, a metal or what it was, but it seemed to be very wrinkled with the wrinkles running horizontal. And in the area where the eyes should have been, uh, it was so wrinkled that that I'm not even sure there was eyes. I don't. I can't recall whether there was any eyes nodding. Calvin says he came. So the things that emerged from the craft were five feet tall or a little taller. They seemed to be covered with what looked like gray skin with many horizontal wrinkles. They had what looked like a pointed nose and similar ears pointing straight out from their heads and an opening for a mouth. However, the two couldn't tell whether they had eyes because of all of the wrinkles. Elsewhere, they described them as having unusually shaped feet that kind of looked like an elephant's feet. And they described their hands as either looking like a hand in a mitten or looking like a claw or a pincher, so not very articulated hands. We'll use an image of them in the episode art so you can see an illustration of what they looked like. Further, the two got the impression that they might be robots because they never spoke, occasionally made sounds that were not like speech, and seemed very task-oriented and mechanical in their movements. However, they acknowledged that this was only an impression, and they didn't know for sure if they were robots. The three figures approached Charlie and Calvin, who were standing on the pier over the river, and according to Calvin... Two of them reached and got a hold of Charlie... And I remember thinking, I need to run, but there was nowhere to run. There was water on the left, water on the right, and water in the front. And it had bad debris all in this water. But I didn't really have time to make a plan. It happened so fast. One of them reached immediately when he grabbed me. I heard like a noise. And that was an injection going into my left arm. This is what they figured out later but it was an ejection going into my left arm. And all of a sudden the fear was gone, but my body was paralyzed, everything but my neck and my eyes. I could look with my eyes to the left and the right and I could roll my head. But other than that, I couldn't have any functions. So two of the figures grabbed Charlie and one grabbed Calvin. Calvin was injected in his left arm with something that took away his anxiety and almost completely paralyzed him. So. It involved both a tranquilizer and a paralytic. Charlie also reported feeling a pain in his left arm and similar paralysis. According to early reports, Calvin fainted at this point. Charlie says, Two of them took me and one took hold of Calvin and I seen Calvin go limp and I didn't know it then, but he had fainted. They were then taken inside the craft and here's what happened to Charlie. So they carried me inside the craft and the light was almost blinding inside. In fact, for about three or four days, I had something like a bad welding flash in my eyes. And I can't remember just what was on the inside simply because the light was so bright that I just couldn't make out what it was. But I didn't see any tables or chairs and the room seemed to be round. Of course, that could have been because the light seemed to be glowing from the walls and the overhead and the ceiling. But they carried me, what, I guess, about the middle of the room, and we would just seem to be suspended there. I, I, I couldn't move. I didn't have any feelings, no sensation. And it seemed to, something like a big eye. I keep referring to it as an eye because it was about size for small baseball. In the end, it was focused toward me. It was a different color or a different light. And it seemed to come directly out from the wall, and it came within six or eight inches of my face. And, and uh, it, it remained there for a, a few minutes, and then it went over my entire body. I, I'm assuming it did, because when it went down like this, I seemed to be suspended there. And the next time I seen it, it was coming back up over this way. So I assumed that it went over my entire body. But it came back in front of my face and stayed there for a few more minutes, and then it seemed to just go right back into the wall. And these things, it, the, the, the way they were holding me, I was elevated because they, they weren't as tall as me, and they were upright, and I was elevated like this. And I could see, I could move my eyes on the thing I could move. And I could see that they had released me. And I don't know where they went, whether they went outside the craft or, or another uh, room or compartment, but they didn't come in front of me. And they left me that way for, for a few minutes, I don't know how long. 
And then after a while, they, uh, I, I seen them, then it, when they come back to the side of me and took hold of me again, and they carried me back outside the craft, and, and we were still just gliding. I, I wasn't touching anything that I know of, and they seemed to just glide back out to where they had taken me from and put me back down on the ground. So Charlie was taken inside by two of the creatures and suspended in the middle of a room where the bright light hurt his eyes. A camera-like object that was baseball-sized and that he described as an eye because one end was a different color than the other, appeared to emerge from a wall and examine his body both front and back before retreating to its original location. He was then left alone for a while, and the creatures reappeared and took him back to where he was abducted. And what happened to Calvin? He tells a very similar story, although the two men later indicated that Calvin really hadn't fainted. This was something they said to shield Calvin from unwanted attention, given how shaken up he was by the whole event. Calvin later said that this is what happened. This time, this one creature elevated us up about two foot off the ground, might have been a foot and a half, floated us in toward this craft which is like nothing I've never seen. I was still kind of blinded, so I couldn't really make it out till we come out. And when we got to the door, I remember looking, and that's what the lights was coming out of. And I looked in to see if there was any light fixtures or anything, just trying to figure out what was going on. And it looked like the lights was coming out of the paint. It was just being illuminated out of the paint. Now, how that happened, I don't know, but that's what, what it looked like to me. Well, he kind of paused then, and that's when I got a chance to look. He made a left turn. When he made a left turn, we just kind of breezed up a little bit, and on the right side, they had a, uh, a door that was already open. He, this robotic-looking creature that moved like a robot took me into a room and there was a examination table there. Now, I think the table could be made out of glass or something. I really don't know what it was made out of because I, I didn't have a chance to look at it too good. He laid this on an examination table, and this table was at about a 16-degree angle. And that's when out of the ceiling, where well, he backed up out of the way, out of the ceiling there was something the size of a deck of cards, that went around that dropped down about a foot and a half between my eyes and started rotating around my head and my body and uh, making a clicking noise. So when it was doing this, it got through and this thing just shot right back up into the ceiling. Now, I don't know if it had wires on it or what it had on it, but it really couldn't have had wires to do what it did to swing around. So Calvin reports the same basic series of events. The two were floated aboard the craft, but they were taken to different rooms. Calvin reports being put on a transparent table so that the creatures could work on him, and that might represent the same thing that Charlie reported. He didn't see an invisible table or a transparent table, but he did report being suspended in the room uh, so that they could work on him, and they might have put him on a table. He just didn't see it clearly because of the light and didn't feel it because of the paralysis drug. Both were apparently scanned by a small object, which Calvin describes as coming out of the ceiling and Charlie describes as coming out of a wall, which appeared to start doing its scan in front of their faces and then worked its way around their bodies. Calvin says it was the size of a deck of cards and Charlie described it as the size of a baseball and both objects made passes around their bodies. So far, both are reporting the same things. What about the period where Charlie said he was left alone by the creatures? That may be explained by something in Calvin's report. After the mechanical object examined him, he had an encounter with another creature that was different from the ones that took them aboard the craft. This uh, other creature came out from a corner. I don't know if it was another door there or what it was. And... I could roll my head and just look at her a little bit. And I noticed she had facial features, unlike this other ugly creature, kind of robotic. 
And I call it a female, and I really don't know if it is that or not. But there was facial features like ears, nose, eyes, mouth, but I never seen her mouth open. Well, she came up, and I did notice one thing. Her two middle fingers was longer on her hands than what ours would have been. And she grabbed me by the cheek, and she kind of felt my skin and pinched my cheek a little bit. And I didn't have any sensation if, if it was warm or any feelings from her hands. And then she grabbed with her other hand, she grabbed me by the uh, jaw and she pushed it down. And that's when she took her hand and run her two middle fingers down the back of my throat. And that little thing that hangs down, uh, that dangles in the back of your throat there and tried to go up what I call my sinus cavities, I guess. Well, at this time when this was going on, I was choking. I couldn't breathe and my nose was starting to bleed. So anyhow, she just kind of pulled her hands out. She said telepathically, I never seen her lips move. We're not gonna harm you. And it was actually in a female's voice and it was in English, which that kind of surprised me, you know, her being able to communicate that way. But she backed up to the wall then. She made a strange mumbling noise, and it sounded like it was coming all the way from the bottom of her throat. And when she done that, this robotic creature, and I call him a robot because of the way he moved, it was mechanical-like. He came back, he grabbed me by the arm, and I felt another injection, and I heard the noise from an injection, and that settled me down some. Well, she just backed up out of the way, and he picked me up off the examination table and carried me back out the craft all the way to the river again. So Calvin noticed that this other creature had more normal facial features, even though she was still a non-human. He also believes that she implanted or attempted to implant something in his nasal cavity. He notes that when she touched him, he didn't feel warmth or apparently pressure when she touched his face. And that's consistent with the effect of many anesthetics, as you'll know if you've ever tried touching your cheeks after the dentist has numbed your jaw. You, you, you can feel your cheek through your fingers, but your cheek doesn't feel the hand unless you maybe press really hard and it's wearing off. And by the way, the uh, little thing that hangs down in the back of your mouth, which is sometimes pictured in old cartoons as a punching bag, is called the uvula. And stimulation of the uvula causes the gagging reflex, which Calvin experienced. Calvin's interaction with this entity could be the explanation for why Charlie was left alone for so long. And then what happened once the two fishermen were deposited back outside the craft? It departed very swiftly, and the two men continued to suffer partial paralysis for a bit. Calvin was deposited with his arms outstretched, and Charlie's legs collapsed under him, and he could only crawl at first. When the effects of the paralysis wore off, Calvin was extremely traumatized and panicky, and it took Charlie several minutes to calm him down and be able to speak with him coherently. Their first thought was that they shouldn't tell anybody about this because nobody would believe them and they would be subject to ridicule, which was especially true back in the 1970s. When they returned to Calvin's car, which was brand new, it had suffered some damage. Windows that had been facing the craft had been shattered in place, but not fallen out because they were made of plastic-coated safety glass. However, when Charlie opened the passenger's side door, the window on his side did collapse. Also, it took some time to get the car started, and Calvin later discovered that several spark plugs had been damaged. Although neither had been drinking, they both had some alcohol to settle their nerves. Uh, Charlie had a few gulps of Jim Beam whiskey from a bottle he had with him, and although Calvin normally did not drink, he stopped the car at a local hangout and ordered a beer. If they decided not to tell anyone what had happened, how did the story of their encounter get out? Charlie began having second thoughts about it and decided that they had a duty 
to report what happened to them. He asked Calvin to stop the car at the nearby Mississippi press office, telling him that he wanted to check what time it was. Neither one of the men wore watches because the primitive mechanical watches of the day wouldn't keep proper time for them due to the shock of swinging a sledgehammer all day long as part of their shipbuilding job. You know, they weren't high-tech shockproof watches. Charlie later said that the reason he wanted to stop at the Mississippi Press was to speak with a reporter, but there wasn't one there and wouldn't be one till morning, so he came back to the car. Charlie then convinced Calvin that they needed to report the event to the military, fearing that the apparently alien creatures they had encountered might be a threat to the country, and so it could be a defense matter. They stopped the car again at a payphone, and Charlie called the nearby Keesler Air Force Base. However, he was told that the Air Force no longer investigated such events, and that was true since the Air Force's UFO study program, Project Blue Book, had closed three years earlier in 1970. The person he spoke with at the airbase told him that if they wanted to report it, they needed to talk to the local authorities. Charlie thus called the sheriff's department, and they were met by some police officers, and then the two went into the station where they were interviewed and told their story to the officers several times before they finally went home. The local sheriff, Fred Diamond, assured them that the sheriff's department was not a news service and would not spread their story around the community, something they were both concerned about. But did he keep his word? He says he did. But the next morning, when Charlie and Calvin went back to work at the shipyard, the place started being besieged by reporters. Some showed up in person. Others were calling from distant locations and jamming the phone lines so that the yard couldn't conduct normal business. Their bosses thus summoned them to the office for an explanation. The owner thought that they ought to bring in legal counsel just in case there might be potential implications for the business, and so they called in a lawyer named Joe Kalingo that I guess they had on retainer. Sheriff Diamond had asked that the two men come back to the station to give more formal statements than they had the previous night, since they'd only been interviewed so far and hadn't made formal statements. And so they went in. Also, Calvin convinced Charlie that they ought to have some tests done on them. He knew that the Apollo astronauts had been quarantined upon their return to Earth, lest they have picked up some pathogen in space. And he was afraid that they might have been exposed to a dangerous virus or bacterium by the creatures they encountered. Also, since this was the Cold War and fears of radiation were high, he thought they might have been exposed to that also. Calvin had already thrown away his clothes from the previous night and applied bleach to his body and showered in an attempt to get rid of anything harmful that could have harmed him or potentially harmed other people. In fact, Calvin was extremely traumatized by the whole sequence of events, which other people noted. This is Hal Camillo speaking to you from the Jackson County Sheriff's Department here in downtown Pascagoula, where this morning we had uh, an interrogation or interview with two of the gentlemen that reportedly sighted and were taken aboard a UFO late last night in the Goche area. And we have with us Sheriff Fred Diamond. This is what we understand, Sheriff Diamond, that the two gentlemen, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, are being checked out for radiation at this time. I understand, Sheriff uh, Diamond, that the youngest man, 18 years old, I believe, uh, Calvin Parker, is still in quite a bit of state of shock. And that's very, very much true. He's still very, very upset. Their attorney has advised that there will be no interviewing because the men, according to the attorney, are still in a state of shock, especially the young boy. Uh, this, this same object that... Uh, supposed to have picked these two men up was spotted about uh, 45 minutes earlier uh, up near the Van Cleve area. It was also spotted by two or three people in Pascagoula. In other words, Sheriff Diamond, there have been quite a few reports uh, of this UFO uh, in our area and approximately at the same time that uh, these two men have stated that they were taken aboard. Everybody that we have talked to that have uh, talked to the men tend to believe their story. How about you? Yes, sir. I definitely believe their story. Did we have a lie detector test? 
we do have one, but it, at this time they were so upset they didn't want to take I've agreed to take a lie detector test, even in Jackson. In other words, they, they have no qualms about taking the test whenever you specify. Both of them will take a, will take a test to prove that their story is true, and I definitely believe they believe it. I believe I heard one, uh, Sheriff Diamond, as, as uh, they first arrived here in your office, uh, I think it was the young one, the 18-year-old man, uh, said he was willing to take the test even last night. That's very true, very true. And uh, he, he got very emotional up here this morning. I noticed, uh, especially, we keep talking about the 18-year-old, and he is really upset by the situation. That's true. I got a call from his mother about uh, four to five minutes ago wanting to talk to him. And he's not even in the condition to talk to his mother at this time. We, they're going to the hospital, and I think they will give him something to quieten him down. So Calvin in particular was extremely distraught, but the men were willing to take lie detector tests and plans were being made for that. Also, there were multiple reports from other people who apparently sighted the same craft on the same night. And Sheriff Diamond had this to say. Well, all we could do was go to the scene and interview these men and and really stay with these men and uh, observe them and question them. I mean, to the fullest extent, their stories were the same. Interviewed them separately, and then we put them together, and we monitored their conversation. So they interviewed the men separately, and then put them together and monitored their conversation. We'll have more to say about that later, as Sheriff Diamond is referencing somewhat cryptically a key piece of evidence, because what the police did was make a secret recording of the two men talking between themselves when they were left alone. But their stories, whether being interviewed separately or talking to each other alone, their stories were the same, which is why he and the other officers who interviewed them believed that something traumatic had happened to the men. What were the results of the examinations they were given? The local hospital checked them out and didn't find anything wrong with them, but the hospital didn't have radiation exposure testing equipment. So they ended up being taken to the Keesler Air Force Base after all, and they came up clean. Also, while they were at the Air Force Base, they were interviewed by various military officials, so they got to give their story to the Air Force, even though Project Blue Book was closed. How did the UFO community react to their story? Once it hit the national press, the UFO community immediately took notice. Two prominent ufologists immediately flew to Pascagoula to interview and examine the two men. One was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was a former Project Blue Book official, but now was heading the Center for UFO Studies, or CUFOS, and he flew down from Chicago. The other was Dr. James Harder of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, and he flew in from Berkeley, California. Both arrived within 48 hours of the incident and interviewed Charlie and Calvin. Dr. Harder also hypnotized Charlie, and he started to hypnotize Calvin, but when they got to the abduction material, Calvin became so panicked that he ended the hypnosis session. On October 30th, so at the end of the month, Charlie also took and passed a polygraph test, and eventually Calvin also would take and pass a polygraph test. What did Hynek and Harder think of the two men's credibility? Both were impressed and found them credible. At the press conference following their investigation, Dr. Hynek had this to say. There is no question in my mind that these two men have had a very terrifying experience. And Dr. Harder said this. There was definitely something here that was not terrestrial. Where they come from and why they were here is a matter of conjecture, but the fact that they are here is true beyond a reasonable doubt. So Dr. Harder went further than Dr. Hynek and was willing to say that the experience was definitely not terrestrial in nature. Hynek was characteristically more cautious, and later that year he said this. I went down to Pascagoula. Completely negative, but I talked, I worked with those men for quite a while. I listened to tapes that had been taken when they didn't know they were being taped. I uh, uh, saw what, how Charlie behaved under hypnosis, and uh, finally the, the lie detector test. All of those things convinced me that he was not making it up. The, they had had. They had had an experience, period, 
So even though Hynek was initially entirely negative towards the encounter, he ultimately was convinced that the two men were honest about the fact that they had a real experience, though in his typically cautious way, he didn't pass judgment on whether the experience was, was extraterrestrial or not. And what happened after the initial furor died down? The two men took different paths. In fact, they grew apart because Calvin suspected that it was Charlie who leaked the story to the press, something that he very much did not want to happen. However, in recent years, he has said that he thinks the story actually leaked because in the 1970s, people in Pascagoula, including the press, had police band radio scanners. And they learned about the report by overhearing what the police were saying as they investigated the incident. You'll remember they, after they called the Air Force Base, they called the police station, and then the police station dispatched some officers to meet them and bring them to the station. So that would have been, hey, guess what? These two guys say they just got on board a spaceship. Go, go talk to them. You can imagine the local press with their police scanners would be interested in that. In the years after the event, Charlie was willing to speak publicly on the subject, and he often gave interviews and lectures. Ten years later, in 1983, he co-authored a book about the experience called UFO Contact in Pascagoula. Calvin, however, wanted nothing to do with the press and only very rarely spoke to reporters, sometimes just to get rid of them if they tracked him down. He also suffered in his personal life as a result of the experience. Three weeks after the event, he suffered a nervous breakdown and had to be briefly hospitalized. However, he swiftly recovered and married his childhood sweetheart. The ongoing stress caused by the trauma of the event and people wanting to ask him about it led to marital difficulties and the two divorced. But they eventually remarried, and in recent years, his wife encouraged him to write a book about the event to answer people's questions. He eventually did so, and in 2018, he published Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story. The publication of this book led to a new flurry of research into the incident, including the rediscovery of many documents that were hidden away in archives. And in 2019, he published a follow-up volume called Pascagoula, The Story Continues, New Evidence and New Witnesses. He also participated in a documentary about the event and has begun giving interviews. Did Charlie and Calvin ever report any further encounters with the creatures? Yes, they both have. In January of 1974, Charlie was spending a day hunting squirrels in a tree farm where he saw what he thought was the same craft. He also thought he received a telepathic message that said, We mean you no harm. We mean no one any harm. You may communicate with us later. You have endured. You have been chosen. There is no need for fear. We will communicate again. He found this message relieved some of his post-abduction anxiety. A month later, in February of 1974, he thought he received another telepathic message. You must tell the world we mean no harm. Your world needs help. We will help in the future before it's too late. You are not prepared to understand yet. We will return again soon. Then, on Mother's Day, or May 12, 1974, his family was driving back from visiting Charlie's elderly parents when the whole family had an encounter. According to an article published in the Mississippi Clarion Ledger in 2002, On Mother's Day, May 1974, Hickson was riding back from a family get-together in Jones County with his wife, their youngest son, Curtis, their daughter, Sheila, and the man she was married to at the time. It was almost midnight, Hickson says, and I kept noticing a light back behind us. I nudged Sheila, who was sitting on the front seat beside me, and said, Look out that window and see if that light ain't following us. She looked out the window and just froze. My wife Blanche saw it and started screaming. Seconds later, a saucer-shaped craft was hovering 150 feet above and to the right of their car. I saw it with my own eyes says Sheila Heinem of Vicksburg, who was 18 at the time. Mama was so scared, she was screaming. It was a terrifying thing to see, Blanche Hickson says. It affected me bad, tore me up. We stopped the car and Charles wanted to get out, but I wouldn't let him. We were all grabbing him and holding him. 
It hovered there a while, then just disappeared. In his book, Charlie also reported receiving a telepathic message at this time. Once his family members started freaking out in the car, he was told, Go. There will be another time, another place. Hickson also reported receiving other telepathic messages in later years, which we'll discuss more in The Reason Perspective. What about Calvin? What kind of subsequent contact did he report? He didn't report nearly as much as Charlie. However, in 1993, he reported an incident of missing time. He had gone fishing and was sitting on a boat anchored near Cat Island, which is a barrier island just off the coast of Mississippi in the Gulf of Mexico. He got there at about 8.45 a.m., and about 30 minutes later, he suddenly realized it was dark. Checking the time, he discovered it was 11 p.m., so he'd lost almost 14 hours of time. During that period, he had apparently eaten the lunch he had with him and drunk all the water he had brought. When he got back to shore, he went to his pickup and found a note on the window from his wife saying, Where are you? I'm worried. Which was natural since he told her that he would be back before dark. Since he didn't have a cell phone, it being 1993, he immediately drove home, which was not far away, like 15 minutes. The next morning, he discovered that during the missing 14 hours, he also apparently had caught a bunch of fish because his ice chest was full of them. Eventually, he was hypnotized by the famous UFO researcher Bud Hopkins, and he reported having encountered the same entities as in 1973. He was again taken aboard a craft, and what appeared to be the same biological entity that he had perceived as female, again tried to do something with him like inserting or removing implants. However, this time, Calvin wasn't completely paralyzed and got into a physical confrontation with the entity and severely injured her. Then, one of the robot-like beings injected and paralyzed him again, and the female entity took it out on him by scratching the area around his eyes. As with Charlie's post-1973 encounters, we'll be discussing this more under the reason perspective. Before we do, though, I also want to note that if you look at their accounts, both this one and the one from 1973, it looks like whatever paralytic they were given was very short-acting because they both received multiple injections of it during the course of these reported encounters, and it wore off really quickly. So that if that's the case, as suggested by other aspects of this, that it would have been a short-acting paralytic, you could see how they might mistime it, and it could wear off enough for him to get into the physical confrontation, and they got to got to anesthetize him again. Okay. Before we get to the theories about this mystery, let's thank our patrons who make it possible for us to do this show, including Father Leo, Derek B., John N., Jennifer P., and Justin R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about the Pascagoula UFO abduction? From the reason perspective, the basic question we need to answer is how much truth there is to the accounts of Hickson and Parker. All of it might be true, none of it might be true, or some of it might be true and some not. To the extent that their claims are not accurate, what might the sources of error be? There are several possibilities we'll need to consider, as with any UFO encounter. One is misidentification, the idea that the people involved misidentified a conventional phenomenon as an extraordinary one. Another is hoax, that Charlie and Calvin deliberately made it up. And yet another is imagination, that they made some details up without realizing that they were saying anything false. 
We also need to determine what to make of their reported encounters after 1973, and we'll actually be doing that before the close of this episode. And then we also need to consider what might be said about this encounter from the faith perspective. What can we say about the Pascagoula UFO abduction from the faith perspective? For a general discussion of what the theological implications would be for intelligent alien life, people can go back and listen to episode 55, which is devoted entirely to that subject. Beyond that, there isn't a huge amount to say. What about the idea that some people propose that alien abductors like this are actually demons? We'll be discussing that fully in a future episode. For now, I'll note that the possibility was considered by both Charlie and Calvin. For what it's worth, both of them uh, were, or in Calvin's case, are professing Christians. Charlie was raised Baptist, and around 1983, when he, his book came out, he still identified himself as a Christian, but he had some unusual beliefs like reincarnation. However, by 2002, he was announcing his Christian faith in more orthodox terms and declaring that he believes Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross. When Charlie spoke about the possibility that the entities were demons, he dismissed it. He also reported that a preacher once tried to get him to say that they were demons, and he wouldn't do it. He had said that he saw dollar signs in the preacher's eyes and suggested that, you know, so the preacher wanted to get him to say these were demons and then exploit the story. But because he saw dollar signs in the preacher's eyes, uh, he didn't approve of that. And he suggested that when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, that people trying to make a fast buck off the suffering of others will have to answer for it. Calvin entertained the idea that they were demons more seriously for a time, but in the end, he concluded that they weren't, which would be supported by his ability to physically injure one of the entities in his 1993 abduction account, if that's accurate. He apparently caused her to bleed rather severely what looked like black blood in that physical encounter. As listeners will know, I think that in keeping with Occam's razor, Every phenomenon should be understood in terms of how it presents itself until the contrary is indicated. And this phenomenon presents itself as a physical one with physical effects that we'll talk about. It seems much more like a nuts and bolts UFO in story than a classic demonic manifestation. Before we close, we're going to cover part of this story from the reason perspective. What do you want to make sure we get to? I'd like to start by considering both men's post-1973 encounters and deal with them first, because the evidence concerning them is weaker than the evidence concerning the original experience. They aren't as well documented, while the initial event is very well documented. What you make of the later encounters thus will depend, on, to a significant degree, on what you think of the initial 1973 report. If you think the 1973 report is not credible, then these later accounts won't be credible either. However, if you think the 1973 report was fundamentally accurate, then the situation is more complex. On the one hand, it is reported in the abduction literature that people who experience one abduction often experience subsequent ones, just like human scientists often tag wild animals and then track them over time. They may even periodically recapture the same wild animals and examine them. Both Charlie and Calvin believed that tracking implants had been put on them, and that could explain subsequent encounters. On the other hand, the 1973 experience was dramatic enough for both, and was highly traumatic for Calvin, that it's also possible that even if both men were being absolutely honest, it could have lodged in their imaginations and caused them to think that they had subsequent encounters, even though they didn't. And, of course, it's also possible that the initial 1973 event was real, but then one or both of them decided to start manufacturing later encounters. So we've got several possibilities, even if the 73 event's real. Assuming for the moment that the 1973 encounter was real, what would the evidence suggest about Charlie's later encounters? The best, the one that's best attested is the Mother's Day 1974 encounter, which his family asserts that they witnessed. You know, the paper interviewed them. Well, that's noteworthy evidence. It's not conclusive, 
but it is noteworthy. The other encounters that I've been able to document for Charlie, though, were only things he saw by himself or even just thought he was receiving mentally. So there's not as much evidence. We don't have independent witnesses for those. All of his encounters involved a telepathic element, and many of his later encounters were purely telepathic. Now, whatever you think of telepathy as a proposed psychic ability, I wouldn't dismiss it in the case of extraterrestrials because it can be done mechanically. We already, we primitive humans, already have a basic form of mechanical telepathy where you can use brain scanners to read what is going on in one person's brain and transmit it to something to through technology to another person's brain and you know we've even had people like cooperating to play tetris like games together through mechanical telepathy so we already have a basic form of this and if you if you've got a high tech alien implant in your head they can probably send you messages via purely mechanical telepathy so that's well within the range of tech for anybody who could get here from another solar system on the other hand since telepathy is experienced only as a feeling or a voice in your head it could also just be your imagination whether charlie actually later saw a ufo or not he could have imagined that aliens were talking to him maybe the we don't mean you any harm you've been chosen messages he claimed to receive were wish fulfillment messages conjured by his imagination rather than things aliens were really telling him and it seems to me that there's evidence for that because in 1983 he gave an interview in which he discussed what the aliens had been telling him he didn't disclose a lot and he confessed that he was having a hard time understanding some of it, but he made a dated prediction. And he said that by the end of that year, 1983, everyone would realize that we're not alone in the universe and there would be no doubt about this. Well, obviously, that didn't happen. So it's a failed prediction. One could chalk it up to him misunderstanding the aliens because he said he was having a hard time assimilating everything. Or you could even chalk it up to them changing their minds about whatever demonstration they might have been planning. But it still counts as a failed prediction. And that's a strike against the accuracy of his telepathic messages. Though, if Charlie was deliberately hoaxing these messages, he likely wouldn't make a prediction that would be so quickly falsified, you know, within 12 months. And so that suggests that he believed what he was saying. I thus conclude that Charlie's telepathic messages were likely a product of innocent imagination rather than deliberate hoaxing. If we continue to assume that the original 1973 encounter was real, what do you make of Calvin's reported 1993 encounter and physical confrontation with the female entity? Well, I'd assume that he did have an experience of missing time on his fishing trip off Cat Island. Always take people at their word until you have reason to think that they're lying. But even assuming he did have this missing time, I need to ask about possible causes of it, because missing time can be caused by things other than alien abduction. Things like hitting your head or other brain injuries or sunstroke or regular strokes or various medical conditions or even falling asleep. Ultimately, I don't have the details needed, including Calvin's medical history, to determine whether any of these might fit the circumstances of this experience. So I can't really say one way or another. The question then turns, because he didn't have conscious memories of encountering aliens, he only had a conscious memory of missing some time. The question would then turn to what do you think about the events he reported under hypnosis? If you credit hypnosis as a reliable memory retrieval tool, then the encounter he reported under hypnosis would count as evidence that he was reabducted and got into a physical confrontation with the alien. However, as listeners will know, I don't believe hypnosis is a reliable memory retrieval tool. 
as we discussed in episode 52, since it basically invites you to imagine situations and then believe that they're true, though this isn't supported by scientific evidence. Consequently, various professional medical groups warn that hypnotic ret hypnotically retrieved information should not be taken as reliable. I thus can't credit what he reported under hypnosis. I mean, it could have happened, but hypnosis is not a reliable way of establishing that. And suppose you had had a very traumatic encounter in 1973 that you believed involved aliens that really shook you. Well, years later, you experience missing time, and then you undergo an unreliable technique like hyp hypnosis to fill in what happened as an explanation for the missing time. Given your personal history, it would be very natural to imagine that you'd been reabducted by the same aliens you'd feared all these years, and since they traumatized you the first time, you could understandably desire to get revenge on them and hurt the one you perceived as their leader. It thus seems to me that Calvin's hypnotic report could easily involve a scenario built out of his past trauma. And during the encounter, he reported getting blood on his clothes and having his eyes scratched, but there doesn't seem to have been evidence of that afterward. Uh, on the other hand, high-tech aliens could always have cleaned his clothes and fixed him up in order to cover up what happened. So that's kind of a wash. In any event, I don't think that the evidence for the post-1973 encounters is as good as the evidence for the original one. And what you make of the later encounters will really depend on what you think about the first encounter. If the first encounter isn't credible, then the later ones aren't. But if the first encounter is credible, then you've got more of a question about these later ones. The key question is, what does the evidence say about the 1973 experience? And as we mentioned at the top of the show, it's one of the best documented abduction cases on record. So that's what we'll be looking at next episode. All right, Jimmy. And in the meantime, what further resources can we offer the listener on what happened here? We'll have links to Calvin Parker's book, Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, and also his book, Pascagoula, The Story Continues. We'll have a link to Charles Hickson's book, UFO Contact at Pascagoula, also the Pascagoula documentary that Calvin recently participated in, links to interviews with Charles Hickson both from 1983 and 2002, links to a page on the Pascagoula abduction and the history of wildlife tracking, and mechanical telepathy, and an article by skeptic Joe Nickel, and an interview that Calvin recently gave on a podcast, and the Pascagoula full moon calculator, which will uh, come up in one of the details we'll mention next week. All right. In the meantime, uh, let's look at some mysterious feedback that we've received from listeners on our recent episode on uh, the illumination of conscience, or the warning. The first feedback comes from Heather T. on YouTube, who writes, Thank you so much for this. I grew up in an environment where this kind of apocalyptic prophecy was the focus of the faith and not scripture, serving others, mercy, or critical thinking. It did considerable harm to the formation of my conscience and relationship to God. It concerns me that this focus is once again gaining so much traction. Thank you for being fair and balanced. Thank you so much, Heather. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do this, because as we mentioned, there were people who were freaking out about this and experiencing panic and wondering, am I going to get to live my life and things like that? I had a teenager write about that and wanted to provide as much consolation as I could. L. Custer writes on YouTube, Father Gobi's predictions caused at least two mental breakdowns in young adults in my extended family. It is very sad that people follow uncritically people who state they are receiving messages from Mary or God. And uncritical following is the problem. Critical following, where you follow St. Paul's advice and test everything and hold fast to what's good, is what needs to be done. Because as Paul says, we shouldn't despise prophesying, but we should test it. Jeff T. Orthodox on YouTube writes, I have to agree with Jimmy on this. I don't believe it myself, but it would be a huge gift if it comes true. And it would. We're talking about the illumination of conscience. So if there was a worldwide illumination of conscience, it would be a gift to mankind. 
Uh, Blackheart writes on YouTube, Personally, I believe what Countdown to the Kingdom are publishing on the illumination of conscience to be true. Christine Mark and Daniel have posted incredible webcasts, and you can see they are very devout Catholics, true shining examples of how to be a Catholic. I did laugh at Jimmy trying to rationalize the two colliding comets. If God can make the sun spin in Fatima, quite frankly, he can do anything. God can do anything. I acknowledge that he's omnipotent, and we pointed it out in the episode that when we talked about the two comets that were colliding objects that would form a cross in the sky, we talked about how that was difficult to square with the reason perspective because of the way comets work, unless God did a miracle. And of course, God can do a miracle, but if he doesn't, it's hard to explain in other terms. And I also agree that I've had uh, very uh, cordial discussions with Christine and Daniel, and they were both uh, big helps in preparing this episode and the one that followed. Uh, Bruce Haslam writes on YouTube, Jimmy, can you point to one prophecy not currently formally approved by the church that you would lean toward believing? I'm trying to ascertain if you always come down on one side or another or have a mixed bag of opinions. Absolutely fair question. And as an answer, I would invite you to listen to episode 44 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World when we talked about John Hendricks, the Tennessee prophet. He's not even a Catholic, and thus his reported revelations have not been tested by the church. But I lean towards thinking uh, God spoke to this guy. So I'm definitely open. It's it, an apparition does not have to be approved for me to favor it as long as there's good supporting evidence for it. Patty Day writes on YouTube, the investigative process you used is quite thorough. It can help make better decisions than those made mostly from emotion or simply making no decision. I'm going to try it on some choices this week. I'm pretty emotional. And I'm glad you found it helpful. That was one of the things I was hoping for both this episode and the one that followed it, that it would model how to process these kinds of issues in the absence of a formal church ruling, because people will need to form their opinions about these things. And if the church hasn't done the analysis for us, what kind of analysis should we do? What should that look like? I also recently, I think, Dom, you actually commented on this on Facebook. I saw someone who said that they heard around their their family discussing around the table and their four-year-old was saying, we need to think more like Jimmy Aiken. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I did see that. I did. Yeah. And I I responded, yes, if we only we could find more four-year-olds to think more like Jimmy, that would be enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's an impressive four-year-old. That is an impressive (laughs) four-year-old. Google user on YouTube writes, I've never put a lot of stock in the stopped airplanes, etc., but I have heard the testimony of two people I think credible who have received it. And I know a third person personally. Meaning an illumination of conscience, that, personally. Right. I've assumed that they received it in advance so as to tell the rest of us about it. Another friend and I have been praying for 20 years to be ready for it so that if it happened in our lifetime, we would be able to help others who did not expect it. The one person I know personally who recently received it was blindsided by it. He didn't know about the warning before it happened, but he has definitely changed. Since listening to your show, and thank you for your research, I guess I will have to wonder why some people are receiving the kind of grace described and others are not. What the three folks I've listened to have received is not a normal illumination. Yeah, and that's something I'm perfectly happy to acknowledge, that God sometimes gives people supernatural insight into the state of their souls. Sometimes that happens in connection with a near-death experience. A lot of people who've had near-death experiences come back and say, yeah, I got a life review and I have a new perspective on things. And sometimes they come back and said, I need to live differently than I have been. So that can happen also, though, in just ordinary life without a physical trauma. So that can definitely happen. And it's, it's hard to ascertain why some people get it and some don't, whether those are forerunners of a of a later global event or not is a different question. But do people sometimes get mystical insights into the state of their soul? Absolutely. Ted Koval writes on Facebook, I recently listened to episode 122 and bothered by Jimmy's easy dismissal of the influence of aliens on happenings on Earth. You may want to check out a documentary that the BBC airs that follows an alien who comes to the Earth and actively protects the Earth from the bad alien intruders. I might note that it is interesting that this alien often works with Earth-born humans 
more often than not, an attractive young female. Maybe SQPN should have a podcast about this documentary. <laughs> oh, I'm always interested in what the historical documents have to say. The historical yes. documents are very interesting. Yes, I hear this This uh, alien often assumes the title of a, a learned person, maybe like doctor or something along those lines, but who it is, something we'll never like know. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> who, kn who knows? Who knows? Uh, only Jonathan on Facebook writes, I have to listen to this thrice for me to understand it better. English is not my prime language. Well, for using the word thrice and prime correctly in this sentence, you deserve points for your <laughs> English. A lot of English speakers would have difficulty using thrice and prime as well as you just did. So congratulations, Oli. <laughs> so, uh, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines? Well, speaking of things that come out of the sky, kind of our theme this episode, uh, <laughs> FedEx pilots recently were landing at Los Angeles International Airport, or LAX, as it's called, when they passed a man with a jetpack. Hmm. So we'll have a link to that story about guys zooming around LAX in jetpacks. Bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Also, we'll have another link to a to where you have video of the Royal Navy testing what are billed as Iron Man jet suits. Now you mm. look at them, they're not really Iron Man suits because they're not armored. I think the the British newspaper needs to read a few more comic books to understand <laughs> Iron Man, but they are jet suits and they they're they're like being used to hop from for boarding from one ship to another. Like you could if you had a I don't know, some you got to board another ship for some reason and you don't have the time to do it by sending a dinghy across or docking with them. You get your guys in the jet suits and they can just fly over there and do whatever they need to. So it's some cool video. And, uh, you know, it is the 21st century now. So where are all the flying cars That's what I asked. that we were promised? Yeah. yeah. Well, a Japanese company is uh, just successfully tested a SkyDrive flying car. Very nice. So you can check that out, and maybe they'll be coming to a showroom near you soon. Excellent. Those uh, Iron Man jet suits, I can imagine the like special boat squadron is their equivalent of the Navy SEALs boarding pirate uh, take, ships that pirates have taken or something like that, using them. That would yeah. be... That's okay. That's going to be in a movie at, at some point, I, I would assume. So I'll look forward to that. Yeah. But first, they need to add the armor. Yes. It has to be like armor. It has to look cool. Yeah. Got to look cool. I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to be boarding a pirate ship with no armor. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. So as we wrap things up today, we do want to appeal for your feedback on today's show. What are your theories so far about the Pascagoula UFO encounter? You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or by sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to cover? Well, we'll continue to look at the Charlie Hickson, Calvin Parker UFO abduction from the reason perspective. Specifically, we'll be looking at was the original 1973 encounter real? What does the evidence say about that? And we'll be hearing some of that secret tape recording that was made just a couple hours after the event. Excellent. Folks, remember to like this episode on the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Uh, follow us on Twitter. We're at SQPN or at MYS underscore world. And be sure to retweet it and share the episode around to your friends. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at SQPN.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast. Please visit SQPN.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>